Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter number four. We will be reading verses nine through twelve this morning. And let us take a moment and pray for the reading and the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for a beautiful day that you have given us to come and gather together as your people, as you have commanded us to do, a covenant people, Lord, the new covenant people who have drawn together into the body of Christ as Christ as the head and all of us, Lord, then parts of one another. And the Father that you have then, as an instrument of worship, you have given us this peculiar activity of preaching the word, Lord. And I say peculiar because so many people think that worship is everything else except that. But Father, the center of your worship is your word, the declaration of your word, the the proclamation of your word. And so Father, I pray that this morning that our hearts and minds will be ready to receive that word and that you would prepare the preacher to proclaim the word, Lord, and that you would, Lord, remove me from the equation, and that you would speak directly to your people through your word. I pray, Lord God, that you would use it to continue to shape us and change us more and more into the glorious image of your Son, who is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, and the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, this way. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be, would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. The late R.C. Sproul said, Abraham's circumcision was a seal, an authenticating mark of confirmation that the Lord would keep his promise to justify Abraham by his faith and cut him out from those who in Adam are destined for destruction. So, root or fruit? 
And what is the difference? It can be said that the root and the fruit are both parts of the tree. The root of the tree and the fruit are still both part of the tree, but do they have the same value? Do they have the same function? And obviously the answer is no, because we understand that there is a big difference between the root of the tree and the fruit of the tree, because the fruit is the product. It is the outgrowth of the tree. It is the byproduct of what the tree is, right? If, an ap- if it's an apple tree, then the fruit will be apples. If it's an almond tree, then the fruit will be almonds. But, but the root of the tree is the source of the tree. It's the essential part. If a tree doesn't have fruit on it for a season, the tree still lives. But if the tree loses its root... The tree is soon dead. You see, the roots are the essential part of the tree's existence. The fruit is not. Not to mention, the roots, from the roots comes the fruit. In fact, the roots come before the fruit itself. The fruit is the long-term byproduct of the existence of the roots of the tree. Now, you might be thinking, like, why in the world are you starting our 22nd sermon in this series on Romans with an agricultural lesson about trees, roots, and fruits. Well, it's because the the concept here is actually relevant, not just for agricultural purposes, but also spiritual matters as well. In fact, the metaphor of trees and roots and fruit has been used throughout the scriptures to really help the Christian to understand the faith. In Matthew chapter 7, we, we read Jesus' words, he says, you will recognize them by what? By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruits, but every diseased tree bears bad fruits. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. Psalm chapter 1, we're told that those who, who meditate on the word day and night... Right, are like a tree that's planted, its roots planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit in a season, and the leaf doesn't wither. John chapter 15, we're told by Jesus to abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, right? unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so this idea, right, this agricultural idea of roots and fruits is an important metaphor for the Christian faith and also the Christian life. In fact, one of the most important questions that we can ask ourselves is, what is it the root of our relationship with God? What is the root of our justification before God himself? What is the essentials of our justification? What is it that actually gives us life? And the reason why I ask this question this morning, because there seems to be a lot of confusion in the world around us about this. For many churches, for as many churches as there are in the world, and as many people on social media who claim to be teachers and influencers and theologians, there is a lot of confusion in many people's minds between the difference of of the root of our justification and the fruits of our justification. 
One of the benefits actually of social media has been I've been able to interact with a lot of different people in different parts of the world who have different perspectives. And that has given me a great opportunity to really learn some things I didn't know and to grow in the process. But one of the downsides of social media is that anybody and their brother can create content even if they don't know what they're talking about. And the result of that has been is a lot of bad teaching and theology on the internet. And because of, because of that, there is a lot of confusion in the world about the root and the fruit of our justification and salvation. What is at the root of our faith? Is, is, it, is it grace? Is it faith? Is it baptism? And I ask the question because there are a lot of people who believe that you must be baptized to be saved. There are a lot of people who believe that. There are a lot of people who believe that you must be baptized with the right prayer formula to be saved. But is baptism the root of our salvation as so many people think that it is? What about confession? A lot of people believe that confession must precede justification. That you must confess all of your sins if you're going to be saved. Or how about obedience to the law? There are a surprising number of people who believe either, either directly or indirectly that somehow, someway, you must obey some form of the law to have salvation. There are some people who say that you must obey the Ten Commandments, including even observing the Sabbath. There are some people who say that you must keep the whole Torah. That's the, the Torah observant movement we see popping up in our culture now. Others don't quite identify specific laws, but they believe that somehow that you must do something to get right with God and clean yourself up so you can come to God. But is any of that required for our justification? Now, do we... Now, we, now we do know, right? We do know that you we're commanded to be baptized. I mean, Jesus said that we ought to be, right? It's an act of obedience. And we know that the moral law still applies to us Christians and that we're commanded to walk in obedience to the moral law. And we know that we're told in James to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And even in the book of James, we're also told that faith without works is what? Dead. And we were also even told in the scriptures multiple places to be holy as your father is holy or as your God is holy. But, things of those, but, but which of those things are essential for our justification? Which of these things are at the root of what it means for us to have a right relationship with God? And then which of those things are the fruits or the outworking of that? Well, today's text is extremely helpful for us to understand what the difference between the essentials of our righteousness is and what the outworking of our righteousness is. Today's text will help us to actually get really very clear about the distinction about what's at the root of our relationship with God and what is the fruit of that. So turn with me to Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. And Paul, again, begins to ask the question. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also the uncircumcised. Now quickly, just for context, right, we need to talk about what this blessing is that he's talking about. 
This is not just some generic blessing. There's a specific blessing he's talking about. And if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, you'd realize and understand that Paul is talking about the blessing of justification by faith. Remember, Paul has been explaining to the Roman church what the gospel is, and he's been doing so in great detail. And he began his exposition talking about the bad news of man's condition, which, which is the truth that mankind is under God's wrath because of his sin. And he explained that this isn't, isn't limited to just the Gentiles. It also includes the Jews. It's a universal problem for all of mankind. And so Paul makes it clear that mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, stands guilty before God, which is the bad news. But then the good news is that God himself put forward Christ his son as our atoning sacrifice. And that by faith in him, And what he has done, we are justified. That is the blessing that he's talking about. Paul says this blessing of justification is being counted, being credited with being righteous before God, and then also having our sins forgiven. That's the blessing that he's referring to. We are right with God. We are reconciled to him as a gift of grace by faith. This is the blessing that Paul is is pointing us to, and this is the blessing he's continued to talk about in this imaginary conversation that he's having with some Jewish person who's struggling to understand the gospel. And so Paul asks if this blessing of justification is for the circumcised only. Is it only for the Jews? That's what he's talking about. When he says circumcised, he's talking about the Jewish people. Because that's, because that's what he's talking about. He talks about those who are part of the old covenant community. The blessing, is it reserved only for the Jews? Or is this blessing for the uncircumcised or the Gentiles also? Is this blessing included for those who are outside of the Old Testament covenant community? Those who have been given the law of Moses, is the blessing of justification available to them too? And I want you to notice the word also here in this text, right? Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? The word also helps us to see that this blessing was manifestly, absolutely for the Jews who believe. This has always been part of God's plan. God's favor upon the Jewish nation was without question. He singled them out to be His covenant people. He singled them out to give them the law. He singled them out to be this peculiar people that he can demonstrate his goodness to the rest of the world. And so his elect, those who are his children by faith, absolutely includes many of those who are Jewish descendants. And so the question that Paul is asking is about whether or not the Gentiles also then can lay claim to this promise. Again, if you remember, the Jews are really struggling with this idea that somehow, someway, they're on the same footing as these dirty you know, Gentiles who, who don't have the law. Paul makes this point to demonstrate that the Jews are on the same ground as the Gentiles with respect to sin, right? That being Jewish and keeping the law and being circumcised is not the basis of their being right with God, even though many Jews believed that it was. So Paul makes it clear that the Jews are not better off than the Gentiles on the same ground, right? But does this level ground extend to the blessing of Christ as well. If both Jews and Gentiles stand alike equally condemned, right, are they now both also 
justified by this same faith. But Paul has a bigger point to make here. He says, for or because we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Now, the thing to remember is Paul has already made the point. This is just a repetition of what he said in verse 3. Paul said, for, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul says that, that, that the Scriptures teach that Abraham was counted righteousness by faith. So why then does he feel the need to repeat himself here? This is one of those little easy things to overlook. But why take the time to repeat himself? Well, notice the word we. It's an important word here in this text. He says, for we say, not I say, we say that faith is counted to Abraham as righteousness. Well, then who are we? Does he have a mouse in his pocket? Right. Who is the we that he's talking about? Who is he talking to? He's talking to an imaginary Jewish opponent who's struggling with the gospel and the inclusion of the Gentiles. He's talking to the Jews. That is the we that he's talking about. He says that we Jews, right, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. What Paul is getting at here is the truth that the Jews know that Abraham's righteousness came by faith. They know it. In fact, the Jews would even say that, because why? The Scriptures clearly teach that. And so the question, so this was never a question about whether or not faith was the instrument for his righteousness. Faith was at the root of his righteousness. Abraham's faith was the root of his relationship with God, and the Jews knew it. In the much the same way, I recently had a conversation online with someone who was arguing that baptism is necessary for justification. And I said the root of our ju justification is faith. And then a Roman Catholic priest jumped into the conversation and he said, I thought that grace was the root of salvation. And I said, you're right. I said, grace through faith is at the root of our justification. And then I made a point to say, actually, it's by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. You see, the Roman Catholic Church rightly argues that grace and faith and even Christ are essential to righteousness and justification. They rightly believe that those things are necessary, just like the Jews believed rightly that faith was essential for righteousness. But that's not the question what is in question here is whether or not that faith alone is sufficient for righteousness. That's what Paul's getting at here. Is faith enough for Abraham to be counted as righteousness, or was there something else required for him for God to grant him that status? This, by the way, is why Protestants make a point to say very clearly that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because over time, the Roman Catholic Church adopted traditions and added works and merit and other mediators to the mix. In the Roman Catholic Church, justification is by grace plus works. And faith plus merit and Christ plus Mary and the saints. You see, the conversation isn't about whether or not faith is at the root of justification. The question is, is our faith sufficient? 
Is God's grace sufficient or is there other things required? And this is where Paul is taking the conversation now. He says, we all know, we Jews know that Abraham believed God and that faith and was credited to him as righteousness. But is is that all that's required? Which then leads to the next question he asks, which gets right to the heart of the issue. He says, how then, how then was it counted to him? We know that righteousness was credited to him by faith. How was this righteousness counted or credited to him? In other words, what were the means of this righteousness by faith? How was it counted to him? Actually, the NIV is really helpful in how it translates this question. It says, under what circumstances was this credited to him? Another translation says this, because what was the context in which it was credited to him? The fact is we all know and that the Jews knew that Abraham was was credited as righteous because he believed God. But what was the context of that uh, being credited to him? Now, this might seem like a a question that's superfluous to, to us today, but it's actually one of the most important questions we can ask with respect to the gospel because the answer we find in this text actually settles so many issues of what is at the root of our justification with God and what is the fruit or the result of it. And so Paul is asking, right, how was this righteousness credited to Abraham? Was it before his circumcision or was it after? You got to understand when he asked that question, he's not asking a question of history. He's not asking, do you understand the history of Abraham? He's not asking the question of timing. He's not not asking a question about dates. This is a question of means. This is a question of causation. What he's asking is, is what caused this faith to be credited, this this righteousness to be credited to Abraham? Was it Abraham's faith by itself or was circumcision plus faith, the instrument that made him righteous before God. Because here's the truth. If Abraham had received circumcision first, and then after that believed God, and then it was credited as righteousness, everything we know about the gospel changes. Because a biblical and theological argument can be made that states that Abraham's circumcision was an essential for his faith and him being made righteous before God. That, that circumcision would have, been, it would have been essential for his justification. It could have been said that circumcision was not the work, was not a work, but an act of faith that produced in him the righteousness. Which, by the way, is exactly what some people argue about the ordinance of baptism. People say some really flowery things, but don't say it directly like this. But this is what they mean. Some people believe that getting baptized is not a work that you do, but a regenerating act of faith, an act of faith that produces in the believer a righteousness. For many, baptism is the instruments where where sin is forgiven. Many people believe that baptism is where your sins are literally washed away from you. And this is the argument many people make, including a lot of people in our community, in order to justify baptismal regeneration. They say that baptism is not a work of obedience, but an act of faith that is essential for our justification before God. In fact, they say that faith without being baptized will not save you. 
And still others will use the same exact kind of logic with respect to the law. They will say that obeying the law in whatever form it would be, whether it's the Ten Commandments, right, which is the moral law, or the entire Torah, they believe that obeying the law is an act of faith, like baptism, that produces the righteousness required that we need to be right with God. They believe that disobedience is at the root of our being made right with God. And so this question that Paul asks is actually really very important. So when Abraham, when was he declared righteous by faith? When was he justified? Was it before or after his circumcision? Well, Paul leaves nothing to doubt, and he makes it clear it was not after, but before. Abraham was declared righteous before he was ever circumcised. The point that he actually reiterates in verse 11, Paul explains, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had, past tense, by faith, while he was, what? Uncircumcised. See, Paul's very emphatic here. He wants to make clear that Abraham's circumcision came after being counted righteous by faith. In fact, he was circumcised somewhere between 14 to 20, 29 years later. It's just depending on which tradition you go to. If you look at the, the text and apply a certain kind of literalistic way of looking at the years, it's about 14 years. But according to most Jewish traditions, it's like 29 years. A good long time. And what this means for us then and the world around us is Abraham's faith that justified him and made him righteous before God preceded his circumcision. It came first. God counted him righteous long before he ever received the sign of circumcision, which means circumcision could not be the root of his justification. It must then be what? The fruit of it. As Paul then explains what circumcision was for, right? he says it was a sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith. It's not the cause of his righteousness. It was a sign and seal of that righteousness. Now, this, again, is another text that I've read many times and read past, but there's actually a lot here to think about. The first thing that Paul says is that circumcision was a sign. What does that mean? I mean, it's really easy to just kind of like read that and go, okay, cool, and then move on. But, I mean, really, what is it? What is a sign? A sign is an indication a sign is a mark or a signal of something else. In fact, notice that sign and signal are related. A sign is a signal or indication of reality. That's what a sign is. It's like the sign that's out front here that faces the street. It says on it what? It says First Baptist Church, right? Now, I know it's a bit faded. and It's probably time we replace it, but it still says First Baptist Church. And that sign is a signal that this is where the church gathers, right? This is the church's property, a sign right, that indicates this is where the church meets. But understand, it is a sign of the church, but that sign is not the church. You see the, the difference? You see, a sign is an indication of reality. It's not reality itself. Again, like the sign out front isn't the church, and neither is a street sign, the street itself. 
Or like the big love sign that now everybody looks for when you're off way at a distance. How many of you guys have done that when you're driving now from way out like Mojave or from Four Corners? You go, oh, I see love's way over there, right? Yeah, it's a sign that indicates that there's a business there that sells gas and snacks, right? But the sign is not itself the business. It's a mark, an indication of the business. The sign of circumcision is a mark, an indication of something else. It's an indication of Abraham's righteousness that he already had, that he possessed by faith. But it's not his righteousness itself. In fact, Paul says the sign of circumcision was actually a seal of this righteousness, a mark in the flesh that acts as a seal. Well, what does he mean by seal? Well, we have to understand what a seal was in the time of Abraham. It was typically a wax seal. This is where somebody would take molten, max and a, uh, molten wax and apply it to something like a letter or an opening or some type of um, container, and then they would affix to that wax, they, put, they would apply to that wax somebody's signet ring that would leave an identifying mark that was an official mark that stayed stuck to the object. And this seal represented something like a government or someone like a king. And this wax seal was often used as a proof mark or a mark of authentication. This seal bore witness to the fact that something was authentic. For instance, if a letter had a seal on it, that seal, that letter was considered to be an authentic letter of the one who owned the seal. It was a mark that validated something. And I think this is a concept we all understand. All of you guys have had, or most of you had, had children. And when you went to get your, your child's birth certificate, you would find that on that certificate was embossed the seal of California on it. It was California's seal of authenticity. That seal lets you know that the document is official, right? Now, the seal itself is not the birth certificate, but the seal is a visible mark that demonstrates that the birth certificate itself was authentic. And so what Paul is saying is that the sign of circumcision was a seal of Abraham's righteousness that he had already by faith. His circumcision was not his faith, right? And was not what made him righteous, it was a mark. It was an indication of his faith. It was proof that he'd already been counted as righteous. Circumcision is a sign of a deeper reality. And we see lots of these kinds of signs and seals and signals that represent deeper realities. In fact, most of you have one on right now. A wedding ring is a sign and a seal of something greater than the ring itself. It's a sign and seal of a marriage. And by the way, simply possessing a wedding ring doesn't make one married. Agreed? And for those guys that have to work with their hands, not having one doesn't mean that they're not married. It's simply a visible symbol of an invisible reality. Same thing with a police officer's badge. It is a sign and seal of his or her authority, but the badge itself doesn't do anything, doesn't confer any authority to them. It just simply indicates the authority that's already been granted to them if they're truly a commissioned officer. And again, it's the same with government seals or corporate seals. They all point to something that already exists in reality. They are a sign of reality, not the reality itself. And so Abraham's circumcision was a visible mark on Abraham of the righteousness that he had already had 
been credited to him by faith long before he was ever circumcised. His circumcision was an outward sign of an inward reality that existed. And so his circumcision was not at the root of his justification, but it was the fruit of it. Now, with that said, let's talk about the implications of that. First of all, Abraham's righteousness was by faith alone then. A gift of grace from God. The entire basis of Abraham's justification was the fact that he believed God's promise. Period. That's it. Nothing else. This is important because Abraham is held up as the example for all believers. So that means his being made right with God is simply on the basis of faith, which means faith and justification and righteousness precede or came before the seal of that righteousness. Justification and righteousness were already a reality. Righteousness was already credited. Justification had already been declared by God before the sign and seal were ever given. This also means that the sign and the seal are symbols of that righteousness, but not the cause of it. Circumcision was the fruit, but not the root. Now understand, just because Abraham's circumcision was not the root of his faith didn't mean that it was unimportant because the truth is there was great value in the sign and seal of Abraham's righteousness. First of all, it set Abraham apart from the rest of the world. He was literally cut out from the rest of the world. That was the point, the purpose. Secondly, it identified him as a part of the Old Testament covenant community, a community that would grow into a mighty nation beyond counting. All of those who then received that mark were connected to Abraham in the nation of Israel. Third, it was a sign and seal of the very righteousness that he had by faith. It was the proof mark that God was, had already credited him with righteousness. And fourth, it was a mark of Abraham. It was not a mark of his promise to keep the law, but rather it was a mark that God would keep his promise to justify him. The thing that we fail to see is that circumcision wasn't for God. It was for Abraham. Now, before we move on, let's talk about how this applies to our modern context then. Seeing that Abraham is our example, how does this apply? Well, some, like such as the, the, the ordinance of baptism, as we talked about, many people think that baptism is essential to righteousness. But look at Abraham as our example, being credited as righteous by faith. What we can see is that faith functions in much the same way as his circumcision did. Baptism sets us apart from the world because it identifies us with who? With Christ. The sign of baptism is a rehearsal of Christ's life, death, and then resurrection. It is also a rehearsal of our old nature dying and us being raised a new life. If you had a chance to read our statement of faith, Article 7 states it this way. Christian baptism is the immersion of the believer in water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified and buried and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. It is a testimony 
to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Baptism identifies us with Christ. Our statement also says, being a church ordinance is a prerequisite to the privilege of church membership and to the Lord's Supper, which leads to the second point. Baptism also identifies us with the new covenant community. Just as circumcision was a sign of the old covenant community, baptism is a sign of the new. In fact, as we've said multiple times before, that is how you enter into the church itself officially is through baptism. And third, it is the seal of righteousness that we have by faith. As Christians, we understand that when we come to faith in Christ, our sins are not only forgiven, but His righteousness has been credited to us and counted to us by faith. And our baptism is an outward expression of that righteousness that we have by faith. And then fourth, just like with Abraham, baptism is preceded by justification by faith. Being counted righteous and having the sign, uh, having our sins forgiven by faith comes first before baptism. Which means baptism is a symbol and a sign of justification and not the cause of it. I don't think we can say that loud enough or clearly enough. Because there are people who will go to the scriptures and pick out one or two verses and try to make a case and say, you absolutely must. But it is the fruit of our justification, not the root of it. And the same can be said with respect to the obedience to the law. Abraham was justified by faith, right? And then 14 to 29 years later, he was circumcised. And he was counted as righteous several hundred years before the law or the Torah was ever given. You realize that, right? Long before the Ten Commandments were ever given, Abraham was already justified by faith. This means that Abraham was declared righteous by faith, not by the works of the law. It also means that Abraham was declared righteous before God without having to keep the Torah. You understand what that means, right? Abraham, our example of being declared righteous by faith, he didn't keep the Levitical commandments because those commandments weren't even given yet. He didn't keep the dietary laws. They weren't given yet. He didn't keep the festivals. Why? Because the festivals hadn't even been instituted yet. And guess what else? Here's the one that really gets people's dander up. Read Genesis. There is no indication that Abraham kept the Sabbath. A lot of people get really worked up about that, but then you have to go to the text and read what it says, and it doesn't ever say that he kept the Sabbath, at least not in the sense the way the Jews did. It's not there. The law, Torah, was a sign of the Jewish people that didn't exist at the time of Abraham, which means Torah observance was not essential to Abraham's justification, and that means it's not essential for us either. What about the Ten Commandments? What about the moral law? Well, it is true that obedience to the moral law is important for Christians, but that obedience itself is not the cause of our justification. It is not the root of our righteousness with God. It is the fruit of it. You understand, we are all, as Christians, called to obey, but that obedience is not the reason why we have a relationship with God. We obey because we already have a relationship with God. We don't obey to be saved. We obey because we already are saved. 
Growing in holiness and obedience is the fruit of our salvation, not the root of it. Hence, Paul distinguishing in Galatians between the difference between the, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, really quickly, just turn with me to, to Galatians chapter 5. It's just a couple of books further along. In Galatians chapter 5, we're going to start with verse 19. This is probably a text that many of you are very familiar with. Beginning in verse 19, Paul says this. He goes, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There is a whole bunch of sermon series just in that little bit by itself, right? But, he says, the fruit of the Spirit, the outworking of the righteousness granted to us by God by faith is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Notice it says that this is the fruit of the Spirit. It didn't say that you have to have those things in order to be right with God. That's the fruits. It's not the root. It's the fruits. The truth is, if we are born again, and if we are truly repented and believe the gospel, our minds and hearts will begin to change. And that change at our root will produce in us a change in the fruit of our lives. It's inevitable. The God that we once hated, we will love. And the, God, and the sin that we once loved, we begin to hate. And we will experience a growing desire to walk in obedience to the moral law of the Ten Commandments because we have been supernaturally changed by God. Now, this doesn't mean we'll be perfect, as our catechism has made really clear this morning. But it does mean that since you have been born again and radically transformed by the Holy Spirit and have had your sins forgiven and been declared righteous with God or justified by faith, and then you were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the fruit of that will be a progressive growth towards holiness and obedience, little by little becoming conformed in the image of Christ. And, and so the root of our justification is grace through faith in Christ, then the fruit of that then is confession. The fruit of that is baptism. The fruit of that is a desire to go, grow in holiness and grow in obedience to the law and the commandments of God. Now with that said, let's look really quickly to finish up with um, the second half of verse 11 and then through verse 12. Paul writes... The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul says the purpose. Well, what purpose? The purpose of Abraham being justified by faith and then being circumcised later on. The purpose actually is twofold here. Number one, the purpose was so that the righteous 
that righteousness by faith could be credited to those who are not circumcised, those who are not Jews. The blessing of justification and the forgiveness of sins have, that have been given to Abraham right, are now extended to all people, not just the Jews. By the way, that's the point of the entire point of, of the letter to Galatians. When you read that, what you'll understand, what Paul is arguing is against a bunch of people who've been convinced that you have to become Jewish to be saved. Right? And what Paul is saying is God's, God's purpose was that the Gentiles would be included in the blessing of justification, which, by the way, had been the plan all along. Secondly, the purpose was to make Abraham the father of all, of all who have faith. That he is the father of all who have faith, Gentile and Jew alike. Not only was he the father of an ethnic political nation of Israel, he is the father of God's elect. Because he is the example for all of us. In fact, notice it, um, it says that the purpose was to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before. The idea here is actually pretty simple. You see, it's what's more important than Abraham being the father of some political nation is him being the father of God's people, the elect, those who would come to faith in Christ. And the thing that we need to understand is this last part of the text is the truth that being Jewish and being circumcised and being part of the old covenant community did not make somebody part of the elect, as many of the Jews supposed that it did. The only thing that counted as righteousness was like Abraham, their faith in the promises of God. The faith in God's promises qualified them to be part of God's Family. In fact, it says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Those who are Abraham's offspring both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, are part of his family in exactly the same way. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, the Messiah alone. And that is the root of our common justification. And a sign of that justification, whether it's circumcision in the Old Testament or baptism in the New, just like our obedience is simply the fruit of that justification, but never, ever, ever is it the root. And so what we do with this is what? Rejoice, church family. Rejoice. Because if you are in Christ, if you have repented and believed the gospel, not only are you justified not only are you made righteous before God, not only are your sins forgiven, you are members of God's family by grace through faith in Christ. And your baptism that you had is a sign and a seal of that reality. It is the authentic, authenticating mark on your life that it's a real thing. Now, if you're not baptized, but you are a Christian, I would encourage you to walk in obedience and get baptized. 
not as a way to be saved, but as a symbol that you belong to Christ and the new covenant community. And if you're not in Christ, then I would call you to obey the gospel. Not obey a bunch of rules, not get right with God somehow, some way, not clean your act up and then suddenly you can come to God, but rather repent and believe the gospel. And the gospel is simply this, that God created all things, including you, and He created you special to have a relationship with Him. But because of the sin of our forefather Adam, the sin that's been imputed to you, your relationship with God has been destroyed, which means you're at odds with Him. And, and not simply just because of what Adam did, but that's what you want. If you're not in Christ, that's what you want. You're at odds with God specifically because you choose to sin. Right? You're openly in rebellion to God on your own. And because of that, then God's wrath rests upon you. And the worst part is, is if you want to fix it, you can't. Why? Because nothing we can do can change our nature, and nothing we can do can make ourselves right with God. That's the bad, bad news. The bad news is all of mankind stands condemned before a holy and righteous and just God, and there is nothing that a person can do to save themselves. But then the good news is that God did for us all the things that we couldn't do for ourselves. Right? This is a truth that just blows my mind over and over and over again. We needed righteousness. And so what did God do? He sent Christ into the world to become a human being to then in His humanity earn for us a righteous standing with God that we could never, ever earn on our own. And then Christ went to the cross and then took upon Himself the sins of the world and died in our place so that when we put our faith in Him, an exchange happens that is so mind-blowing that you should sing the rest of your life of the goodness of God's grace. Your sins were credited to Christ as if they were His, and His righteousness is credited to you as if you earned it yourself. And that when you stand before God now, that He doesn't see your sin. He sees the perfect obedience of Christ in you. And if that weren't even enough by itself, then God sent His Spirit to live inside of you to change your heart and shape you more in the image of Christ, to give you a desire to be obedient and to pursue those fruits of your regeneration. And He did all of that for you, and all you did was what? You believed. You put your faith in the risen King Jesus Christ, and all the promises of heaven are yours. <laughs> what a wonderful God we serve. Why wouldn't you? repent and believe the gospel. Well, if you're someone who hasn't yet and would like to know more how you can, by all means, talk to me or one of the deacons in this church or really any of the Christians in this church and we'd be happy to share with you how you too can receive Christ by faith. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.